Men, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, after, I don't even know how long, being out of the book of Acts, we return to the book of Acts, and we'll plan on continuing through the book of Acts, at least till about, till Easter, unless the Lord, of course, decides otherwise. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution, that is, Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And when they heard him and saw the great signs that he did, or excuse me, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we stand on the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand, Lord, on the shoulders of those who've come before us, the shoulders of Philip who preached the gospel in Samaria, the apostles who proclaimed the gospel the scattered Christians who went about evangelizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, would you encourage us and help us and fill us with your spirit? The same spirit that was alive then and filled the Christians is the same spirit that is alive and fills us today. So we pray that by your spirit you may continue to fill us and give us what we need to be faithful servants of Jesus, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Colossians, towards the very end, as the Apostle Paul normally ends his letter, he ends with some greetings, and then at the very end, in his very last words, before he gets to the grace be with you, he writes to the church of the Colossians, remember my chains. Now, Colossians is known as one of the prison epistles, the epistles that he wrote while he was in prison. And so when he writes, remember my chains, he's not reminding them, hey, I'm in prison. They would have already known that. But for the Apostle Paul, the chains become a kind of symbol. Some, they represent something. He's intending to remind them 
not just, he's not, he's not reminding them of himself. He's not pointing the church to himself. He's pointing the church to Jesus Christ. He reminds them, I am in chains for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as is obvious in this section in the book of Acts, we see that there is a great persecution of the church. The Apostle Paul, who writes to Colossians much later, after the events here in Acts chapter 8, commanding the church to remember his chains, is also the one who brought many Christians chained and into prison. I think that even as he spends those words, he's remembering his past and his hand in the persecution of the church. Two headings I want to consider with you this morning. One is the persecution of the church, and second is the execution of the Great Commission. So this follows Stephen's fiery speech or fiery sermon in Acts chapter 7, 8, verse 1, probably belongs with chapter 7. But in chapter 7, Stephen is a deacon in the church, a man filled with the Spirit and wisdom, is engaging with religious authorities and others in the crowd, and it tells us in Acts chapter 7 that they could not withstand the wisdom with which he was speaking. And finally, the crowds, the religious authorities, have had enough, and they bring him to a kind of trial, to a court, and it's a court with an already predetermined outcome. They essentially bring three charges against Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Three charges, that Stephen speaks against God, that Stephen speaks against the temple, and that Stephen speaks against Moses and the traditions and the laws handed down by Moses. And according to Jewish religion and Jewish law, these are very serious charges. We won't go through detail, but in Stephen's speech, he goes through actually through each of those charges. He doesn't speak against God. In fact, he holds God very highly. He doesn't speak against Moses. He's not against Moses. He holds the traditions of Moses very highly. He doesn't speak against the temple. He's essentially pointing to Jesus, who himself said that he is the new temple. And if you destroy this temple, he will rebuild it. In other words, he's actually trying to, he's reinterpreting this idea of temple, that the temple is not, the physical temple is no longer the place where men are called to gather in order to worship God, for Jesus has become the new and living temple. Regardless, Jesus, uh, Stephen has much more to say. If you remember, he has some pretty direct words to say to the religious authorities. And he places them in one of two categories, 
There are those who speak the word of God faithfully, and there are those who persecuted those who spoke the word of God faithfully. And it essentially says you belong in the second category. That you are just like your fathers who persecuted and executed the prophets who faithfully spoke the word of God to the people of God. Essentially saying, you are not of the people of God. And then they became boiling with anger, and they cast him outside, and they stoned him, and they executed him. It is this speech, this Stephen's speech, that becomes sort of the, the firing pin that launches out this intensity of persecution. It's not that persecution it begins now. It already started before. Right? If you're familiar with the book of Acts, Peter and John were preaching the gospel, and then they were seized by the religious authorities. They were imprisoned. They were threatened to stop speaking the name of Jesus, and they were even beaten and then let go. So this isn't the first instance of persecution, but Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. I mean, unless, of course, you count Jesus. Jesus becomes the first martyr, of course. But after Jesus, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. But now is the moment where persecution intensifies. So Stephen is executed. This passage tells us some devout men came to bury Stephen and made great lamentation over him. I don't know who these devout men were. Perhaps they were Christians. I tend to think they were not. I would think that Luke might have identified them as Christians, but most likely these devout men were actually people who were not followers of Jesus, but protested against the execution of Stephen. In Jewish law, actually, it was condemned. It was forbidden for people to make a lamentation over somebody who is a condemned criminal. But these devout men disregarded the law. Their lamentation, their tears become a kind of protest against what has happened to Stephen. Not only does the martyrdom or the speech of Stephen launches this intensity of persecution that leads to Stephen's martyrdom, but it also launches Saul of Tarsus into his own method of persecution. It intensifies Saul in the persecution of Christians. Many years later, Pope Leo X says, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Arise, O Peter, and consider the case of the Holy Roman Church, the mother of all churches, consecrated by thy blood. Arise, O Paul, who by the teaching and death has illumined and does illumine the church. Arise, all ye saints in the whole universal church whose interpretations of Scripture has been assailed. Pope Leo X penned these words and ascribes them to Martin Luther, calling him a wild boar. But before there was the wild boar, that was Martin Luther, and a wild boar in a good sense, there was wild boar who was Saul of Tarsus, who was ravaging the church, causing a kind of havoc, 
bringing a kind of destruction upon the church. It tells us that he went from house to house. It could have meant house church to house church, taking Christians, finding Christians, investigating where they were, not only that, but investigating where they lived, going into their personal homes with religious authorities, with the authority to draw them, to drag them out of their house. And it tells us both men and women, some might be inclined to be more lenient towards women, to be more merciful towards women, but not Saul. In the eyes of Saul, both men and women were equally offensive. And so he dragged them both out in chains and brought them to prison, striking fear in the hearts of the people of God. I think one of the one of the most diabolical schemes that the devil has ever come up with is this idea of hidden fees. Right? That in COVID, I'm convinced, is devised, designed by the devil himself. But right, these hidden fees that are hidden in these all these words and in very short font or very small font. Right? Things that the person at the other end of the table doesn't really want you to know about because if you knew, you might reconsider what you're about to sign or what you're about to get into contract with. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel, there's no hidden fees. There's, there's nothing hidden that Jesus desires or intends to keep. But he lays it all bare. He tells his people to count the cost of following Christ Jesus. In fact, from the very beginning of his ministry, when he began to preach the gospel, he preached his first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, where he begins with the Beatitudes. Right? And you generally like the Beatitudes. Right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We like all those things. But then we get to the very end. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Right there we might be like, okay, that's a little strange. I liked everything that came before that, but who are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? Then he, becomes, then he gets very direct. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And at that moment, we might be like, whoa, wait a second. Am I, should I expect that I would be persecuted for believing what you're telling me to believe, Jesus? Should I expect that I would be reviled on account of the gospel that you're proclaiming? Many of you are familiar with the parable of the four soils, different seeds scattered on different soils, and only one of them actually bears fruit, enduringly, that is. As for the seeds that were sown on rocky ground, Matthew thirteen twenty, Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. 
And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. So this is one who actually receives the word of God. Not just receives it, but they receive it with joy. But then there's tribulation. Every word means sort of the, the, the pressing together. There's a tribulation that comes upon the life of the person who is described as such, the person who fits this category. There's a tribulation, there's a pressing together of his faith and his tribulation or his distress or his suffering, and he cannot endure long enough, so he falls away and forsakes Christ. And then the other is that persecution comes on account of the word, on account of the gospel and they don't endure, and they forsake the faith, even though they receive the word with joy. Jesus' hearers, and many today might be surprised, that believing in the gospel does not mean that they are protected from all trouble and danger or persecution. And you would think that for one who is, perhaps might be intending to draw as many people to himself, that he might keep this as a kind of hidden fee. Uh, Let me not tell them about this. But Jesus is not shy. Even in his very first sermon, he lays it out that there's a kind of expectation that those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only will they not be protected from all harm and danger that they will experience in the world, but also that they could to some degree, expect to be persecuted on account of their faith. When we consider the person of Jesus, when we consider what it tells us in John, chapter, in, in John that Jesus, he himself identifies himself as the good shepherd. And yet, how do we reconcile Jesus' identity as a good shepherd with a passage such as Matthew 10, 16, where it says there, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Some strange paradoxes in the Scriptures. There's many of them. This is one of them. How is Jesus, who is the good shepherd, how is he a good shepherd when he sends out his sheep in the midst of wolves? Sheep by nature they can't do anything to protect themselves. They're harmless. And yet the good shepherd sends out his sheep in the midst of wolves? We'll try to make sense of that a little bit later. For now, Jesus is not shy. The, the Bible makes quite clear that persecution is a reality. And to some degree, we have no control over persecution. It's not that we go looking for persecution. It's not that we pray for persecution. It's not that we pray for the persecution of other believers. It's not that we don't try to move elsewhere if there is persecution. I mean, this is what we see in the book of Acts. Christians were persecuted and then they scatter and the Lord doesn't forbid them from doing so. The Bible does not command Christians to remain when there is persecution, though there is a category for remaining. But the thing that we have to accept, I think, if we can accept it, is that if we take what Jesus says 
about following him, if we take what the Bible says or what it narrates for us with regards to the first church in the book of Acts, if we consider the early church, it would seem to be the case that the absence of persecution is actually not supposed to be normal, but abnormal. Does that make sense? That persecution is actually supposed to be quite normal in the life of the church. And it's a reality that is hard to accept. And admittedly, I have a hard time accepting that because why? Because I want an easy and comfortable life. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't think anyone here wants to be persecuted for their faith. But I think the scriptures make it quite clear that persecution is actually quite normal for followers of Jesus Christ. And so if that is the case, then the other question has to be, well, then why isn't there more persecution? No, I do think that the Lord allows and permits seasons of prosperity and ease and comfort and praise God that maybe not so much, certainly not so much anymore, we have lived in a country that is religiously tolerant. And so that's part of the reason why there isn't as much persecution, at least here in the West, for us Western, Western Christians. But that can be dangerous also because then we might then come to accept that persecution is actually rare or abnormal. But that wasn't the case throughout church history. That wasn't the case in the life of Jesus. That wasn't the case for the apostles. That wasn't the case for the early church. And perhaps, maybe another reason, maybe a reason why there isn't much more persecution, why we don't see much more persecution in the life of the church in the West, could it be that the church has become perhaps too silent? Or has the church become too worldly? Or has the church become much more dedicated to be people-pleaser than God-pleasers? And I'm not saying that the answer is obvious, but I'm just laying them out as questions to consider. You might even consider, why haven't I personally been the object of more persecution in my life? And it might not be to this, certainly might not be to the degree of martyrdom like Stephen. We prayed earlier for these six pro-lifers facing up to 11 years in prison. And there's questions, there might be questions about where exactly they were protested. It was a peaceful protest, but there might be questions where exactly they were stationed and they're peaceful protesting, but they were there praying and singing hymns. Now the current administration using the Department of Justice targeted them and now face 11 years in prison. In fact, one of them wasn't even in the building protesting. One of them was actually outside talking with the police officers, and now they've got him on some kind of weird charge about de delaying justice or something or, or keeping the officers distracted. And so it's not that persecution is not happening at all. In the, in the example of these pro-lifers, that is a sense of persecution. And I think if you were to Google it, search it, you'd probably find a lot more. 
And all I'm saying is that the Bible makes the case that this is supposed to be quite normal. Hence why Jesus is not shy about laying it out. There's a cost to following Jesus. And there are some who actually receive the word with joy, but they cannot endure persecution, so they fall away. They deny Christ and everything that comes with Christ, forgiveness, eternal life, and much more. Secondly, the execution of the Great Commission. So persecution breaks out in the life of the church, and the people of God are scattered. So there's two surprises, two surprising reactions on account of this persecution. One is that the people of God are scattered to proclaim. The lightning strikes and then disperses. It's like taking a glass and then throwing it on the ground and the glass just spreads everywhere. This is kind of the effect. The people of God are now spreading into different places, leaving Jerusalem. And they're not just leaving Jerusalem, but they're also leaving and they're proclaiming. In Acts 1.8, it says there, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, Jesus is saying this directly to his apostles, but I do think that, this, that these passages or what Jesus is saying here does still apply to the people of God outside of the apostles. That is, that the church will be his witnesses when they receive the Holy Spirit of God and they will go out beyond the walls of Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says, you will be my witnesses. This isn't like you will do this or else. This isn't by force. But he's saying you will receive power. And it's almost like this possessedness. You'll be possessed by the Holy Spirit and you cannot help but then be my witnesses in proclaiming my gospel even to the ends of the earth. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 8. The people of God are persecuted and then they spread out and they continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says they were scattered and went about preaching the word. The word preaching there is actually the word for evangelism. They went out and evangelizing the word of God. So we see then that the invisible power of Christ Jesus becomes present in the visible church, resulting in the church being witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we see the active power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the most pointed, one of the most predominant ways that we see the power, the invisible power of Christ visible in the life of the church is not primarily through the miraculous acts that we see all throughout the book of Acts, but one of the main ways in which we see the invisible power of Christ manifest in the life of the church is there being his witnesses in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Especially in this instance when there is persecution and we see that they are scattered, not to be silent, but they are scattered and they continue to proclaim. Safety is important. Right? We all want safety. We all need safety. These Christians were looking for safety. 
where they were was no longer safe anymore, so they spread out, but safety was not their priority. If safety was their priority, they could have just simply denied the Lord Jesus, kept to their living, kept to their house, stayed where they were, and not feared the persecution of Saul of Tarsus. But that wasn't their priority. It was a, a priority, but it wasn't the main priority. And we see this because they were scattered, and they still continued to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are Christians flowing with the Spirit of God. And this is the prayer I have for myself, the prayer for us as a church, that we may be more and more filled with the Spirit of God. And according to the Scriptures, this seems to be the case that there is a place for having the Spirit of God to a greater degree. Ephesians chapter 2, I believe, says, do not get drunk, or actually no, chapter 4. Don't quote me on that. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And Paul is saying these words to believers who already have the Spirit of God, sealed with the Spirit of God. So the Apostle Paul seems to be making the case that Christians can be filled up to a greater degree with the Spirit. So what I want for, our, for us, for, my, for me personally, is not to be sort of a, a, a glass-half-empty kind of Christian or a glass-half-whole kind of Christian, whatever way you want to look at it. Not even a Christian that is just filled to the very brim, but a Christian that is overflowing. The cup is spilling over with this filling up of the Spirit of God. So they're scattered to proclaim, and the second surprising response of persecution is that they are scattered to reach the Gentiles. The author focuses on Philip and introduces us to the person of Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, it says, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so among the many that were scattered, there was one Philip. This isn't Philip the apostle. This is Philip, one of the deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve the church. Here is Philip proclaiming Christ, heralding Christ, probably engaging in some kind of outdoor, open preaching there in the public square, there in the crowd, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What we see then is that is, is, is the role of persecution in the life of the church. You consider the Abrahamic promise that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed was God's promise to Abraham. And we see that this promise then is, is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God and dies on the cross for sinners, so that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. But then we see more of this fulfillment of this promise through persecution. Persecution then becomes a kind of instrument for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will the gospel be proclaimed to other nations in the world? We see then that persecution becomes one of those chief instruments in getting the church to scatter and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are here this morning 
as Gentile believers because the church, because Christians proclaimed the gospel to different regions of the world and the Lord used persecution to scatter the church so that they can go and proclaim. We see that one of the reasons why there is persecution is for the purpose of the gospel and salvation of the lost. Stephen Neal, who wrote History of Christian Missions, writes six main reasons why the church grew so rapidly in the first century. In this paragraph I'm about to read to you, he gives us one of the main reasons why the church grew so rapidly. He writes, because of their, that is the Christians, because of their dangerous situation relating to the law, that is the law of the land, the Roman law, Christians were almost bound to meet in secret. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. So every, every Christian knew this. When persecution did break out, martyrdom could be attended by the utmost possible publicity. The Roman public was hard and cruel, but it was not altogether without compassion. And there is no doubt that the attitude of the martyrs and particularly of the young women who suffered along with the men, made a deep impression. In the earlier records, what we find is calm, dignified, decorous behavior, cool courage in the face of torment, courtesy towards enemies, and a joyful acceptance of suffering as a way appointed by the Lord to lead to his heavenly kingdom. There are a number of well-authenticated cases of conversion of pagans and the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of a Christian. There must have been far more who received impressions that in the course of time would be turned into a living faith. Did you get that? Persecution becomes not only an instrument of gospel proclamation as the church scatters to different regions to proclaim the gospel, but persecution even becomes a powerful testimony resulting in the conversion of unbelievers as they witness these Christians suffering for Christ. Jesus tells us that the mission of the church is to go out into all the world, proclaim the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach, baptize, and teach to observe all that I've commanded you. Isaiah 59 1 says, Sir, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. It is not that the Lord's hand is shortened that it cannot save. It is not a question of ability on God's part when it comes to salvation, but it's a question of willingness. Will you be saved? The hand of the Lord, the arm of the Lord is stretched out 
and the people of God and being his witnesses. It's a way that the Lord stretched out his hand to sinners to compel them to come to Christ. When we are his witnesses, we are lengthening that reach further and further out, calling believers to repent and turn to Christ Jesus. And so this morning, if you have yet turned to Christ Jesus, the arm of the Lord is extended towards you this very morning, this very moment. And as I said earlier, there's no hidden fees. We're not telling you that life is going to be easy and comfortable till the day you die. In fact, you may be persecuted because of your faith, because of believing in Jesus. But what is the alternative? The alternative is to then perish with the world and everything in it and suffer eternal torment. But the promise is that tribulation, distress, and even persecution, as painful as those things are, they are temporary and will not transfer over into eternity because the outcome for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is joy and peace and everlasting rest with Christ Jesus. The hand is stretched out. Jesus is calling you to take his hand. Believe in him. Confess your sins before the Lord. Confess your need for Christ Jesus. And you will be saved. And you will be forgiven. And you will receive eternal life. And there may be some this morning who may be walking with a false sense of assurance. You might believe that you're saved. You might think that you are saved. But are you saved? Do you love Christ Jesus above all things? Would you lay down your life to follow Jesus, no matter what he called you to give up? Do you love Christ Jesus more than life itself? Do you love his people? Do you desire to be with his people and strengthen his people and encourage his people? Do you hate sin? Do you repent of your sin? Do you love holiness? Do you desire more holiness in your life? And I fear that if you answer no to any of these questions, that you may be walking with a false sense of assurance. But today can be the day when you can rest assured that you are in Christ Jesus by turning your life to him. And believing in him and committing your life to following the Lord Jesus no matter the cost, no matter what may come your way. Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. And yet, if this is the same good shepherd who sends out his sheep amongst wolves, does this not make him instead a cruel shepherd? But I want to spend just a few moments, these last few moments, just considering the goodness of the good shepherd. What is it that makes the good shepherd so good? And I pray this may be an encouragement to you especially if you face persecution one day or if you're suffering today or if distress and tribulation comes your way this week, 
what is so good about the good shepherd, even as he sends out his sheep amongst wolves? John chapter 10, verse 10, says that the thief, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Why is the good shepherd the good shepherd? Because there is abundant life in Christ Jesus. Not only do you receive eternal life in Christ Jesus, but there is a greater degree of more aliveness in Christ Jesus. It's possible to even feel a sense of coming more alive in Christ Jesus. One of the paradoxes of Scripture is that persecution seems to heighten the lived experience of living in and for Christ Jesus. Jesus is in fact saying, if you want to live your life as meaningful as you could, it is not about giving your life to ease and comfort and avoiding all pain and tribulation and distress and suffering and even persecution. But no, that abundant life is only found in Him, only in Him. And having that abundancy in life gives you access to much more in that kind of life, gives you greater access to joy, greater access to peace, inner peace, rest for your weary souls. What else makes the good shepherd so good? Secondly, is permanent abiding. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. What makes the good shepherd so good is that even as he might send us out as sheep amongst wolves, Jesus is saying, I'm going with you. In fact, he's already gone. And he's suffered. And he was persecuted. And he was executed for your sake and mine. And while, yes, he's right now sitting at the right hand of God, but through his spirit, he's also saying, even as I send you out in the midst of wolves, I am also going with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And it's like friends who are brought closer through suffering. We might have read or even seen in a movie once, but two individuals have, are nothing alike, perhaps even considered enemies, but then they go through the same task, going, enduring the same tragedies and going through the same difficulties, and then towards the end of their story, they actually become friends. And that is because suffering does something to friendships, and that is it forges them much closer. And Jesus is saying, that even as I send you out as, in the midst, as sheep in the midst of wolves, I am going with you and your suffering is my suffering. And even through this suffering, we will grow in closeness to one another. Because suffering has a way of forging and strengthening relationships. And it is the truth that trials do oftentimes bring us closer to Christ than good seasons do. A third reason why the Good Shepherd is so good is intimate knowledge. John ten fourteen, Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I I lay down my life for the sheep. Suffering and even persecution has a way of revealing things about Christ that you would have never known or experienced yourself outside of that suffering and persecution. There's a way that Jesus reveals himself most intimately in the midst of darkness and persecution. And in fact, some of you today, right, many of you, if not all of you, have suffered trials and distress and some form of suffering in your life. And if you have suffered it with Christ, you probably would not be where you are today in your knowledge and intimacy and closeness with Christ without that suffering. Because in that suffering, you've been able to see the Lord Jesus much more clearly than you ever have before. There's a reason why someone like John Bunyan, in prison for preaching the gospel, in prison for 12 years, can write the Pilgrim's Progress. There's a reason why many Christians, in the midst of suffering, write the most beautiful and wonderful hymns. Because in the midst of those times of suffering, they see something of Christ that they were never able to see in the times of peace and tranquility. Lastly, the reason why Jesus is the good shepherd is because he seeks the lost. John ten sixteen, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus sends out his sheep amongst wolves and goes with them because it is his way of seeking the lost. That is, he goes, that's how he goes after them. That's how he goes on the pursuit. I don't think the devil has any idea about who exactly are the lost sheep of the people of Christ. But Jesus does. And could it be perhaps that the Lord has placed you in your particular place with the particular people that you are surrounded with, whether it's in your neighborhood or with friends or with your work, Precisely because he knows that there is one or two or perhaps more people in your circles that need to hear the gospel and will not be saved apart from them hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if it means suffering on the count of the gospel, even if it means suffering persecution on the count of the gospel, this is how Jesus seeks the lost. It is his sending us out so that others may know the love of Christ. The reason why the Good Shepherd is so good is not because he protects our body and our minds from danger and distress and suffering. It is because he maintains our unity with him. And it is unbreakable. And nothing can ever take that away. The one who has suffered and has already trailblazed the way for us for salvation, is also the one who willingly still suffers with his people and his wife later on when Jesus finally confronts Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He says to him, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is not so separate from his people, separate from his church, as to not know what their suffering is like, but he's still well acquainted with their suffering. And he chooses to still suffer with his people because that is how good he is. 
May the Lord bless the church. May the Lord bless us and fill us with a greater degree of his spirit so that we may be his witnesses wherever we go, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that even if we should be persecuted on account of the gospel, we might remember that the good shepherd is indeed a very good shepherd. Let us pray. Lord, you tell us that you are the good shepherd and that you lay down your life for the sheep. Lord, by way of response, help us in turn to lay down our lives for you, to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we admit that we do not want hardship. We do not want distress, and we certainly do not want persecution. Lord, we also do not want to be silent either. Lord, would you give us courage, give us boldness, to proclaim the gospel no matter the cost. Lord, help your church. Fill your church with your spirit. Make us your witnesses for the sake of the gospel and for the salvation of the lost. And as we do, help us to remember that you are the good shepherd. And you will always remain so, despite what our experiences, despite what our sufferings might want to persuade us of. Help us to remember and to believe that you are the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. And that you love us and you care for us. And you will keep us to the very end. Lord, hold us fast. Hold us fast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.